This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events. So now I'd like to introduce our speaker, Brian Michael Jenkins. Brian founded the RAND Corporation's Terrorism Research Program more than 30 years ago, and you may have seen or heard his commentary in the media as he is widely considered one of the world's leading authorities on terrorism. Brian currently serves as a senior advisor and president to the CEO of RAND. He is the author of many books, reports, and articles on terrorism-related topics. You can read his bio for yourself in the program, but I did want to just highlight a couple of things. First, he's a decorated combat veteran and a captain in the Green Berets, having served in the 7th Special Forces Group in the Dominican Republic and with the 5th Special Forces Group in Vietnam. Brian served as an advisor to the National Commission on Terrorism and is currently a member of the Aspen Institute Secretary of Homeland Security Advisory Group and the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on Terrorism. Please join me in welcoming Brian Michael Jenkins. Thank you very much, and thank all of you for coming here this evening. Uh, as was mentioned, we, we started the research program on terrorism some years ago. It's actually not three decades ago. It was more than four decades ago, in 1972, um, when I came to RAND uh, uh, directly out of the military. I'd spent 10 years in the military at that time. Everybody's quickly doing the math. Um, <laughs> At, at any rate, no, as I say, it's been a privilege to work with, with uh, so many brilliant people at, uh, on, on this topic. I recall uh, some came here as, 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 as young researchers and, and have, have blossomed into to, uh, national authorities on the topic, people like, like Brian Jackson, others uh, I brought in uh, as, as part of the team that I had assembled uh, and they spent years at RAND and then went on to even even uh, greater achievements elsewhere, people like Bruce Hoffman. Some have come here, and I have the privilege of working with them now, after long distinguished careers uh, in the U.S. government, like, like Ann, Andy Leitman, who spent uh, more than three decades in the Central Intelligence Agency, and when he left government was the Deputy Director of the National Counterterrorism Center. I mean, to be able to to regularly speak with and and, and work with people like that that is that that, that that's terrific. Um, I did a, a a radio interview this morning um, with KBAY KBay, which is up in Northern California, and of course they're all excited about having the um, the Super Bowl in San Jose, and of course along with the Super Bowl comes an enormous array of security measures. And, and uh, the security measures have a, a, a dual effect. They reassure people that people are paying attention to security, and they also remind them of a threat. So there's, a, there's an alarming quality. And uh, one of the first observations of the interviewer was, we live in scary times. And in, in, indeed we do. And uh, Public opinion polls indicate that um, and people are um, frightened of, of what's been happening recently. Uh, the terrorist attacks that we've seen uh, in the Middle East, the, the recent terrorist attacks that we saw uh, last November in, in Paris, the, 
the, the terrorist attack at, at the Inland Regional Center in, in Santa Barbara. Uh, there was just a recent arrest of, of a fellow in Milwaukee who was planning on acquiring, wanted to acquire uh, machine guns so that he could kill 30 people at a Masonic Lodge. Um, we, there was an arrest today, have no details on this, don't even know if it's terrorist related, but a fellow was arrested at Disneyland in Paris and he had with him pistols and a quantity of ammunition, which of course you always bring to Disneyland in Paris, so we'll <laughs> wonder what he's about. Uh, we'll, we'll find out. The other thing that I think is, is contributing to the atmosphere right now is not simply the actions of, of, of ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State or Daesh, whatever you prefer to call it, but this is an election year. And there's a lot of rhetoric that you're hearing right now that is, uh, quite frankly, either intended to uh, exploit already existing fears or if they're not there to fan... Uh, to fan some of those fears and then to promise uh, what you would do as president uh, uh, to solve the the problem. I am ferociously uh, nonpartisan, um, but let me make a general comment that none of the solutions that I've heard from any of the candidates in either party to me sound convincing. This is this is. Um, this is the kind of thing that's sometimes done, as I say, where you exploit fears. Uh, you then say, you know, the world is going to hell. We're all going to die by Tuesday. But if you elect me as your, podium, as your hand hits the podium, this is what I will do to protect the, the country. Um, it's a way to get votes. I mean, if you instead want to say, look, this is a complex issue. We have to think carefully about what we're doing. We want to look carefully at the facts, understand the data, uh, follow policies that are, that are, that are wise. Uh, you might instead consider a career at the RAND Corporation rather than politics. Um, there's no question that we are dealing with a complex, uh, multi-layered uh, threat of which, of which ISIS is, is merely the, the latest expression. And I, and I want to make that point. We, we focus on uh, the name, we focus on the black flag, we focus on, on, on that, but this is really one expression of, of an ideology. Um, in, uh, Al-Qaeda represents this ideology. This is something that is, that is, that is uh, much more complicated than that. But certainly, they, ISIS has succeeded in demonstrating how terrorism works, and that is violence choreographed to create an atmosphere of fear and alarm, which in turn will cause people to exaggerate the threat, exaggerate their importance, and that is precisely what they want to do. And as I say, that, that often, often works. Um, when, my, when my father was still alive, I used to have arguments with him regularly. Because he would say things like, we live in a scary world. Son, I, I don't know how you do this. You're dealing with terrorist violence, these bombings, these assassinations, uh, kidnappings, how terrible uh, the world has become. And I used to take some mischievous pleasure in reminding him <clears throat> 
that he served as a sergeant in Patton's army in World War II. <laughs> now, in World War II, just to keep in mind some, some, some numbers here, um, the United States was then a, had a population of roughly 120 million people. 16 million persons in the United States were under arms, had served, were serving in the military during that period from 1941 to 1945. About 12 million of them went overseas. Of those who went overseas to fight, 407,000, to be precise, 407,312 were killed uh, during World War II. Another, nearly another 700,000 were wounded. So out of those, out of those 12 million who went overseas, there were a million casualties in a country of 120 million. Now, we currently have about a population of roughly 320 million in the United States. Scale that up, and you get a, a, a notion of the, of the impact on it. Um, we went through the Cold War, in which there were 25 to 30,000 nuclear weapons in the Soviet arsenal, pointed not at Paraguay, pointed at us. And we had 25 to 30,000 nuclear weapons pointed at them. Now, fortunately, we came close a few times, but had we crossed the line into nuclear war, it would have been uh, the end of life on this planet as we know it. Now, I'm, I mention th these figures not to be some kind of a, um, a death jockey here in terms of, of, of rolling out statistics, but really to keep things in perspective that, well, yes, there are many things that are frightening right now. Uh, we have dealt with far greater threats in our history, and we have come through them. I mean, when we look at ISIS, yes, I know it shows a tank there. ISIS is not the Wehrmacht. Um, far from it. I mean, look, um, to be sure, um, since 9-11, since 9-11, in this country, individuals motivated by the ideology of al-Qaeda, or, it's, uh, or, or ISIS, are responsible for a total of 39 deaths. That's almost 15 years, 39 deaths. Um, it's gone up a little bit more. If we, look, uh, if we look at all deaths at the hands of terrorists in the United States since 9-11, we're looking at something between 60 and perhaps 100. The reason for the wobble is that there are arguments as to does someone who bombs an abortion clinic count as a terrorist or not. So we get into definition. But, but that's the range. That is the range. This is in a country that during the same period of time <clears throat> experienced 225,000 criminal homicides. So we're talking about, we're talking about something on the edge here. We're talking about <clears throat> maybe four or five people a year. Average American has about a 1 in 20,000 chance 
of being the victim of ordinary homicide, about a 1 in 20,000 chance, our murder rate is running around 14,000, 15,000 a year now, um, chance of being killed by a terrorist in his country, uh, about 1 in 50 million. 1 in 50 million, if we take those figures and run them over. By the way, your odds of winning the lottery are roughly, depending on the size of the jackpot, about 1 in 18 million. Now, I buy lottery tickets. <laughs> it's fun to dream about what you do with the money. I don't plan my financial future on the presumption I'm going to win. And so part of the message is here, look, let's, let, uh, one way we defeat terrorism is by being cool and not being terrorized, and that's within our control. That, 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 that's something we can do. So let's make a distinction between the government's responsibility, which it says in the Constitution is to provide for the common defense, and therefore the government is going to worry about any single incident that occurs anywhere in the country versus individual risk, which, as I pointed out here, is infinitesimal. So the government has some responsibilities, but, and, 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 and we, we, we want to be able to, 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 to meet those, but the individual risk is, is, extremely, is, is extremely small. Um, and we don't want it to propel us into overreaction. Um, what, so what are, what are we frightened of? We are frightened more, not about what terrorists have done. We are frightened about what they might do. And here there are ample, ample vulnerabilities on display all the time. I mean, we, we, we scare the hell out of ourselves. I mean, every imaginable scenario has been on CNN at least 15 times. Um, and beyond that, terrorism acts as a kind of condenser for broader anxieties. So there's no question the country has problems with immigration. We worry about immigration. But immigration is, is, is sort of this difficult, amorphous problem. But when it comes down to an issue of terrorism, then it kind of crystallizes, condenses our anxieties on, on, this, on this one issue. Americans worry about whether we're still the number one power in the world or are we in decline. So again, terrorism has a way of concentrating those, uh, uh, those broader anxieties, and, and it often works. Now, to what's really happening on the ground, let's take a look at, at, at what's happening in, in Syria and Iraq, where, where, where these guys are, 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 have their, their center of, of power. We're looking at the sixth year now of, of, of this conflict. Um, and there are some basic dynamics in here that we can see that have emerged that are currently driving the conflict and, and, and will drive not just the future of Syria and Iraq, but will drive the future of the region and have consequences for the rest of the world. Um, first of all, what began as a political resistance movement, as a resistance to the as a protest against the government of, of Bashir al-Assad, has, has increasingly become a sectarian conflict. 
And, and that has consequences because that makes it more existential for all of the parties concerned, more difficult really to resolve. A Christian in Syria, an Alawite in Syria, by the way, Alawites make up about 12% of the population, they form the, the loyalist bastion of, of the Assad regime. A, an Alawite cannot imagine themselves living under a Sunni which is becoming equated with the Islamic State. Nor can a Sunni, increasingly so, imagine himself or herself surviving under a Shia-dominated regime. Nor can the Kurds imagine themselves doing particularly well under either of, of, of those. So as these things become become more and more sectarian in their nature, they become more difficult to, uh, 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 to resolve. Second, we are at a military stalemate. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that towns won't change hands. They will. I don't mean that there won't be continued fighting. There will be. But what is clear now is that barring some dramatic change, the rebels, ISIS, the more moderate elements, the secular elements, cannot by themselves take over the government either in Baghdad or in Damascus. They can't do it. At the same time, neither the government in Damascus nor the one in Baghdad can on their own restore their authority throughout the national territory. So there will be fighting, there will be changes in the front lines, there will be, there will be slaughter around the edges here, but this is, where, this is where it stands, it's at a stalemate. Contributing to that stalemate is the fact that national armies have failed. The Syrian army more dramatically than the Iraqi army, although with the rapid advance of, IS, uh, of, of ISIS or ISIL across, uh, uh, across Iraq, that was not a matter of their military prowess or capabilities. The Iraqi army collapsed and withdrew. It fell apart. Similarly, in Syria, it's not that the Syrian army was defeated in great battles. The Syrian army was primarily officered by Alawites. The crack units, like the 4th Armored Division, were Alawites. But the bulk of the conscripts were Sunnis. When, that, when they became politically unreliable and began to desert in large numbers, the Syrian government abandoned territory and had to retrench. Power has shifted from the national armies to the militias. And so we have, we have Shia militias, we have Iranian-backed Shia militias, we have Iranian militias, we have rebel formations which function as militias, we have Kurdish militias, we have Christian militias, we have militias. Now, militias can be weapons of, of mass destruction in that they, they can do the bloody work 
of, of, of killing locally, but they, they're not strategic weapons. They're, they're all, in a sense, homeboys. They fight, they fight well in their own territory. You don't move them across the country very, very well. Uh, and that will contribute to the stalemate. What are the consequences of that? Partition. Right now, Syria and Iraq are de facto partitioned. There are Shia parts of it. There's a, an Alawite Christian Druze bastion in western Syria. There's a, a Kurdish bastion across the northern uh, uh, tier of Syria and Iraq. Um, these partitions have a good chance of becoming permanent. I don't mean that necessarily they will be legalized by the UN. They will remain, however, partitions because no one is going to have the force to overrun all of the other components of it. So a permanent partition. Outsiders have come into the contest. The Iranians have come in because of their own interests. The Turks have come in. More recently, the Russians have come in militarily. The Saudis and the Gulf monarchies are providing support to some of the rebel formations. The Saudis recently announced a more ambitious plan to create a, 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 a broader military alliance. Uh, not quite sure. This is still a work in progress. Not quite sure what exactly it's going to mean or how it would work. But there are outside interests. The United States, the European powers are all there. What is clear, however, is that the outside interests are all competing. The other thing that is clear is that the outside interests cannot guarantee, they can defend their protégés on the ground, they cannot guarantee their victory. So what does that suggest? That suggests that there is going to be no easy peace on the horizon. This thing is going to go on. It may go on at higher levels, at lower levels. There may be local accommodations that take place. But the idea that we're all going to get together in Vienna or wherever and sign something and deliver this piece of paper to the ground in, in, in Syria and Iraq and the fighting will stop, that's not realistic. This is going to go on. The nature of that fighting... And now, has, has produced effluence. It's produced effluence in the form of refugees, effluence in the form of, of foreign fighters who have gone there, effluence in the form of this hateful ideology that inspires others abroad. And we are going to be dealing with the effluence of this conflict for the foreseeable future. Um, first of all, the nature of the fighting itself, especially in Syria, has turned half of the country into refugees. Out of, a, out of a nation of about 21 million people in Syria, there are approximately 12 million refugees. About 4.5 million are outside the country. About 7.5 million are displaced within the country. But half. And, and that's because the fighting style, basically, of the Syrian government is not one of winning hearts and minds. It is rather, we will make life untenable in zones that are not under government control. With air power, with artillery, with barrel bombs, 
They will strike food sources, infrastructure related to, to commerce, health facilities, everything calculated to make life untenable. And that generates refugees. Uh, so long as the fighting continues, those refugees aren't going back. They are a source of instability to the surrounding countries. And we see now this deluge of refugees going to Europe. That is, that is a problem. How to deal with it? Uh, the European governments trying desperately to be, to be generous in offering asylum uh, are running into real problems. First of all, I was uh, in September, I was on the border between Bulgaria and Turkey. Half of the refugees coming across that border, all, by the way, no one has papers. Everyone gets rid of their papers. They are all claiming asylum. Um, half of them are not Syrians or Iraqis. They're from Afghanistan. They're from Sudan. They're from all over the place. Everyone's pretending to be a Syrian. Once they get inside the European Union, that's it. They're there. They can claim asylum. And now we see uh, Germany and Sweden and others talking about a lot of these people are ineligible for asylum and they're talking about deporting half of them. Now, think about that. In the last year, a million have come in and now we're talking about we're going to try to send a half million of them back out. That is one hell of a problem uh, uh, to do. It would be very, very difficult. The other problem that we saw on the, on the Bulgarian border is that about 80% of them were young men, single young men, not attached to any family, with zero to very, very little education. Um, now, that's not atypical of refugee groups, but it is a problem. I mean, I'm, I'm an ex-infantry officer. You get 50,000 guys together on a military base, you have... You've got problems unless you can exercise absolutely iron discipline. <laughs> uh, the EU can't do that. This is tearing, this is tearing the, uh, the EU apart. These guys, first of all, they are unemployable. They have no skills, no education. And it's not the 1960s Germany where they need 800,000 Turks to build Volkswagens. This is 2016. You go to an automobile plant in, in, in Germany now, you have robots moving these things around and two guys in white lab coats with, with, with iPads. Uh, there are no jobs for these people. They will become dissatisfied. They'll become angry. Uh, they'll become frustrated. Some of them will go into crime. Some of them will be reservoirs of future radicalization. So that is a problem that, 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 that the Europeans are going to be dealing with. The, the next issue are the foreign fighters. About 30,000 foreign fighters have gone to join uh, the groups in Syria, primarily now going to join um, the Islamic State. It has created a great deal of excitement. This is a physical expression of, 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 of some of these beliefs. So a lot of young men have, have gone off to, to, to join us and, and some women as well. 
uh, 30,000, most of them from the surrounding uh, Arab nations, from Saudi Arabia, from, from uh, many from Tunisia, uh, from other parts of, of, of North Africa, but about 5,000 have come there from Western countries, from Europe, the United States, Australia, um, a, a significant number. Now, what is the attraction? Beliefs are there, um, the physical state. Um, what does ISIL advertise? Unlimited violence. This is the final showdown, as they as in, in their advertisements. Uh, this is the final. This is the final battle between the believers and the unbelievers. And we are authentic because we behead, we kill, we slaughter, we crucify. And this is what they. This is what they. Uh, 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 they're attracting as, as well. Now, um, that is a very interesting group when you begin to attract that. And I'm going to come back to that point because. But the fact that there are so many foreign fighters now, these guys don't have a future in Syria. It's not like there's going to be an end of war and they're they're, they're going to raise crops or something like that. They're going to go on. They're going to be killed there. Or they're going to go on to another jihadist front elsewhere. Russia's really worried. Several thousand Chechens are there, and they're there for, to make the contacts and gain the experience and training to go back up to the Caucasus. Some of them are going to come back traumatized, disillusioned. Some of them are going to come back determined to continue um, uh, their violent campaigns. And so we're going to be dealing with this for a, a very, very long time. Um, the export of, of, of this kind of, of, of violence. Um, we saw this in the most recent Paris attacks, where these individuals went there, trained there, and got back into the EU and got back to, got back to Belgium, where they put this final plan together, picked up their weapons, made their explosive devices, and then came down to carry out that attack in, 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 in Paris. The European authorities are overwhelmed by the numbers. The, the um, you know, they're dealing with, um, in, in France alone, I was talking with the French authorities, um, and they were saying, well, wh how many people do their intelligence services have to monitor? Well, they said they had about 1,800, 2,000, they've gone to Syria, they had another um, 2,500 about whom they had information uh, that they were investigating. They had another group that had been to other jihadist fronts and had come back. What was the grand total? They were trying to monitor about 10,000 people. Now, when I say monitor, I mean people watch too much television and they think, oh, we're going to keep somebody on surveillance. That's two cops eating a pizza and uh, watching watching in front of an apartment building. It is a major logistics effort, an electronic effort, to keep a single individual under surveillance, and you have to do it for a long time. The Kawashi brothers, who killed the people at Charlie Hebdo in France, were under surveillance for years. French authorities knew who were they. They watched them for years. They didn't do anything. They had to move those sources, resources to other more, more dangerous targets, in their view. Months later, the Kawashi brothers carried out the Charlie Hebdo attack. So this is, this is a real issue. 
Europe has another problem in that intelligence and law enforcement are the last bastions of national sovereignty. The Europeans are having real trouble sharing, really sharing information on this. So each country has its own lists. But it is possible to go from France, go to Syria, fly back home via Southeast Asia, don't land in France, land in Germany, cross the border freely into France, head up to Belgium to carry out an attack. By the time they figured it out, the guy was already a fugitive and on, on, on the run again. But that's what you're dealing with. So one of two things is going to happen. Either the European authorities are going to learn to share all of the information they have, or we are going to see, in a sense, the disintegration of the so-called Schengen Free Movement Agreements and border controls are going to come back up. So either police cooperation goes up and borders stay down or borders come back up. And we're already seeing border controls come back into, into place. We have been fortunate, very fortunate here. We've only got a couple hundred people that, we, that have gone, some who have been killed, um, have tried to go and have been arrested on the way or they're currently under investigation. Our numbers are very, very small. We are not dealing with the problem of, of, of returning uh, foreign fighters or infiltrating terrorists. Our problem here is one rather of, of inspiration, that is this ideology, this very effective use of, of, of social media is, is attracting a certain following, some small percentage of whom, very small percentage of whom, are, are, are taking this in and, and acting upon it. Uh, most of our terrorist plots in this country are the product of a single individual. Now, that individual may think he's connected with al-Qaeda or ISIS. In fact, he's connected with the FBI branch of al-Qaeda or, or ISIS. <laughs> uh, and our authorities, therefore, out of 60-some terrorist plots since 9-11, have been able to uncover and thwart all but seven of them. So we're, we are, in baseball terms, batting close to 900. And that's, that's a remarkable a achievement. Um, but there are some changes. We're not only seeing an increased number of people. We are seeing, um, in a sense, a more violent mindset. Back to this recruiting thing. If you look at these videos that ISIS produces and you still are in love with them embracing this ideology, at least what you've seen hasn't offended you, and quite possibly it has been the major attraction. They are getting a different quality of people. The other thing that we're seeing at the same time, and I don't know if it's the recruiting or what, or if it's the social media or the, what's on the, the media, we are seeing a higher incidence of not just younger people, um, but people with genuine mental, uh, mental problems. Now, you can say, oh, all terrorists are nuts. Yes, they are. But I'm talking about people who have a history of mental illness, history of, of substance abuse, uh, things of this sort. Some people who have real problems, like some kid in, uh, they arrested in, 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 in back east, and, and he was in touch with his, what he thought was his um, 
his ISIS um, friend, and he wanted to plan a terrorist attack, and he also asked the, uh, the, the agent, the undercover police who was working with him, and by the way, I also want to kill my mom and dad. Now, this young man is in need of serious attention, um, but this is what we're seeing. This is, we don't have good numbers on this. This is just something we're beginning to see. So that's where we stand. As I say, thus far we've been lucky, but there still is a, uh, some serious concerns here if those trends continue in terms of numbers and in terms of those kinds of people. What has happened is that the ideology has become a conveyor of individual discontents. It's not so much that, um, that in a sense, you know, in, through ISIS, Islam has been radicalized. It is rather that through ISIS, radicalization has been given a kind of a, a pretend Islamic cover. And that's very, very different uh, uh, a thing, and that's going to pose a major challenge uh, to us going forward. Let me just end with this in terms of, of, of looking ahead. As I said, it's a very sober view looking ahead in terms of what's going to happen in the Middle East, what's going to happen here. Either, either one, we are going to um, really see if this terrorism thing continues, we are going to see civilization get to be a bit more ragged around the edges. I mean, this is... It's not going to be the fall of the Bronze Age kingdoms and stuff like that, but, but things, especially in technology-dependent societies, are going to take some, some bumps downward. Uh, that's one possibility. Um, or, second, we acclimate ourselves to... That doesn't mean become inured to it. doesn't mean that we become callous, but we acclimate ourselves to higher levels of, of violence... It was interesting, and during the terrorist campaigns, I was in Belfast, I was in Beirut, I was in Bogota. You could still go in the midst of Lebanon civil war to great French restaurants in Beirut. I mean, I'm, I'm not recommending it, as, as, but what I'm saying is that people adjust to levels of violence. That's a terrible thing, but it, but it happens. Or we end up creating a kind of a high-tech tyranny. Not the old-fashioned tyranny with guys wearing jackboots and jodfers at train stations asking for your papers. That's for the movies. But, I mean, the really kind of high-tech social control for which we have the technological capacity. But fortunately, not a government that is moving that way. But if we truly get frightened, we will see things moving in that direction or we get some combination of all three. But in any case... The real challenge here for us is how do we maintain our democratic open society and deal with these threats and at the same time maintain our open democratic society and not fall prey to some of these solutions that come as a consequence of fear. Danger in having worked on a topic like this for so many years is I can talk about it for days unless interrupted. So let me interrupt myself now, and we've got plenty of time for some questions. Uh, first of all, thank you for such a comprehensive view of what the future of ISIS might be. Uh, having lived in the Middle East and uh, following it closely, 
uh, it's good to have a rational, reasonable view of uh, what it might be instead of getting the bloggers, you know, staring us, and that, that is encouraging. Um, when you talk about the future of ISIS, of course, it also involves the United States. And I read today <coughs> that the Obama administration is uh, boasting that they managed to incinerate either half a billion or three quarters of a billion of the funds that ISIS had somewhere. I guess a quarter of a billion more or less doesn't make a difference. Um, at the same time, they are, they are claiming that they are going to uh, give more arms to the uh, rebel armies. And um, my question to you is, are we planning to get more involved there in that sense? It seems to me perhaps that there is kind of a political calculation here that the Obama administration is thinking, you know, the president is not going to last more than a year from now on. He doesn't want to have a legacy where he lost Syria, you know, to the Russians or whatever. How do you view this? I, you know, one of the um, – it's a good question. Um, one of the – as I say, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I am determinedly – uh, uh, nonpartisan, and, and, and which means I, I managed in my testimony be, before congressional committees, managed to piss everyone off. But um, the the um, one of the problems that the administration has, all administrations have this problem, but in this one in particular, is is that to say what is the strategy. If you look at where we are in Syria, where we are in Iraq, we haven't got there as a consequence of strategy, of strategic thinking. We have got there as a consequence of reflexive reactions to individual events. I mean, we started bombing in Iraq in August 2014 because we were determined to protect foreigners who had fled the, the ISIS advance up to Erbil and prevent slaughters of Yazidis who were on the side of a mountain that we had already seen some. So it was a reaction to a specific event which then grew into a, an, an, an air campaign. Um, we didn't... We, we, we increased our, our support even before that to the rebels because of our opposition to, to Assad. Um, that has turned out to be a very, very costly thus far failure in, in that. And so what do you do with that? Do you walk away from it or do you double down and, and put more investment in it or do you try a different way of doing it? But what I'm saying here is that we, number one, have not had it's not as if somebody sat down and we said, okay, what are our national interests? What is our long-term strategy? It's been a reaction to individual events. Second, if I can be critical of, of, of the administration, um, I, I would accuse them of, of some degree of magical thinking. And, and that is because of our own ideology, our own commitment to our version of democracy, not just democracy, but our version, that means elections. So whatever you get in elections, that's okay. Uh, because of our commitment to territorial integrity of Syria and Iraq, 
because of a variety of things that we believe in, what happens is that our beliefs become our hopes, become our objectives, become, unfortunately, our assumptions and assessments of the situation. And what we have seen dramatically take place in Syria and Iraq is that the reality on the ground has departed further and further away from our set, the, the set of assumptions and goals that are driving our strategy. So at this point, we have kind of a gravity-free strategy, like the, like the, you know, the angels in, 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 in Renaissance paintings that float above the earth. You know, so we have an angelic policy, and it's and it's what it's suspended in in air. Um, it would be up to either. I, I don't think we're going to get there in this administration now, just because it's too late in this administration. This, this, this is this is they're in a different area now. They're looking they're looking at legacy, but this one is going to go way beyond beyond this administration, probably beyond the next administration. Um, hopefully, hopefully, in, 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 in the process here, we will get some, some, somebody to sit down and actually do some clear thinking. That's not yet evident in the campaign rhetoric. Thanks for your uh, thoughtful comments. I wonder uh, what your opinion is as to the origin uh, of ISIS, um, particularly for those of us who were in Baghdad in, in 2009 and 2010 when we weren't doing airstrikes and you could walk around in Kurdistan without your black jacket or Kevlar. Um, who are they? Where did they come from? And how did they gain so much territory? And, and then really the question is, if the 90,000 of us who were there at that time were still there today, would ISIS be a problem? Uh, let me take the last part. Uh, um, uh, first, and, and that is if there were significant numbers, and perhaps 90,000 or even more, um, um, American or, or other forces there, I think it would be a less of a problem. I'm not going to say it would, it, it, there would be no violence, there would be, there, you know, this would disappear. But one of the criticisms that was was uh, leveled, in fact, in, in in this building as we were going into Iraq, is that if you're if you're going to go into Iraq, you're probably going to need a lot more people than we went in with. I mean, my own smart-ass comment was: the good news is going to be, you know, look, the Iraqi army, Saddam Hussein's army. This is a uh, uh, you know, a second-rate army. The good news is, in about three weeks, we'll have Baghdad. The bad news is, in about three weeks, we'll have Baghdad. And then what? And then what? And uh, there was a notion that we can go in, knock off Saddam Hussein, sort of, here's a, here's a, 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 a government for you, it's going to be democratic, keep in touch. <laughs> We're out of here. Um, that's the way Americans uh, like to do things. Um, I, I mean, we, do, we, don't, we don't seek imperial missions, but in, in fact, in that particular case, uh, since things became so chaotic, you'd want to say, you know, how long... It, you can, by the way, make the same argument in Afghanistan and elsewhere. 
if you say, un unless you're willing to really devote the resources for a couple of generations here, uh, and that becomes an imperial mission, then this is questionable. Now, or, the first part of the question, origins of, of ISIS. Clearly, it comes out of the same ideological currents that, that drive al-Qaeda, and there's al-Qaeda types that were in I Iraq when, when you were there. Um, they been, may have been keeping their heads down, but they didn't, they didn't go to Miami and retire. Um, and there were Ba'athist senior officers who were diehards and upset about this, and, and these elements got together, and they created something formidable. Let's say, not as formidable as I think it, 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 it shows on a map. First of all, these maps, these maps are misleading. I mean, you'll see a map, and it'll show, well, here's the Iraqi government, and, and here is ISIS. Um, a lot of that's just nowhere. That's empty, as you, if you've been there. I mean, it's, it's empty. It's nothing is there. And it doesn't mean they control it. I mean, if you actually came up with the areas, you'd, you'd have many, many subtle different shades of a color, and, you know, it'd get down to neighborhood by neighborhood. So that's, it's, it's a very, very different kind of a thing. And, however, the fact that it's been there now for this period of time, it, it gets to a certain level of organization, it becomes, a, it becomes a subculture. That is an insurgency in place for a long enough time with these very extreme beliefs begins to become more than simply some insurgent soldiers. It actually begins to become a society with people committed to it and coalescing around it for all sorts of reasons. And pounding on it sometimes even helps that process. So if you're going to pound on it, you have to either pound on it really hard to smash it, or sometimes by pounding on it, you're just, you're just causing this, this, this coalescence. We, by the way, we as Americans, we as Westerners, are not the best qualified to, to deal with this. One of the reasons I was uh, very, very interested in the, in the kind of uh, alliance structures or, or a greater role played by uh, the Gulf monarchies in the process is in, her, in terms of how to deal with these kinds of situations, they are better positioned not just geographically, but I mean in, in, in terms of knowledge, in, 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 in terms of culture, and everything to deal with this a lot more effectively than, than, than we can. And it's not simply a matter of, we don't want American troops to lose, their, you know, we don't want American boots on the ground, so can we shove someone else there to do it for us? No. It is, we have to recognize that we are on the margin on this thing. Our ability, as I say, short of a massive, massive investment and a certain degree of ruthlessness that is going to go far beyond what the public is going to support. We can't do this. And so we can try to contain it. We can try to influence it at the edges and so on. But we don't get to solve this one. Unless we want to be, you know, like the, the British and the French in 1915, and we're going, to, we're going to run a mandate and take it over for a while. And I don't think there's any support for that. So instead... This is going to go on, and we're going to live with it, and we're going to deal with it the best we can. And, and hopefully it gets better, and hopefully some of the other people in the area 
uh, can really begin to, tr to try to help sort this thing out. Other questions? Thank you very much for that very sober depiction of the problem. Uh, my question is, um, you touched on the fact that, that a big part of this power is in their barbarity and their ruthlessness. Um, how do you counter-message that? And I guess it's good that I'm following up the military force button. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you apply soft power to that? Or how do you, how do you enter diplomacy in that picture? How do you give those, uh, maybe they're mentally ill, maybe they're obsessed with violence, what, what have you, um, how do you give them a, a, an alternative? For, for those who, you know, look, in, in, terms of, in, 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 in terms of soft power um, or messaging, um, you know, I, th I think we have to be, again, realistic. For, to, to counter the message of unlimited violence, that's, for those who are attracted by that, it's very, very hard to counter that. I mean, that's like saying, you know, we, we, we you know, look at the, the best-selling video games in the United States. I mean, it's, 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 they're not about farming. <laughs> and if to, to, to those people to, to whom that appeals, still a small number of people, the, the, the counter-messaging is, is not going to reach them. I look regularly at the, at the biographies of those, the homegrown terrorists or those people who, who want to join up. And I think we sometimes have a mistake that, that we, we depict them as innocents, you know, an innocent teenager on, on their computer in between the video game and the porn site. They stumble into an ISIS website, you know, <laughs> and take it in and become sort of Mr. Hyde terrorists. That's not the case. That's not The bios don't show that. They show people in personal crisis. They show people who are, in some cases, inherently aggressive. They show all sorts of things. Uh, yes, do they express their terms and sometimes in, in, in the rhetoric of religion, but boy, their knowledge of the religion is is this thin I mean, they haven't been. It, this is really ab about an internal drive I mean look at, look at uh, Mr. Farouk out, out in San Bernardino I mean yes his wife declared that they were doing this in, in, uh, on behalf of ISIS but he started planning these thoughts even before ISIS existed so this was Al-Qaeda and at the end of the day what did he he killed his fellow workers at the Inland Regional Center. You'd say, where's, where's, the, where's the fuel driving this kind of thing? This is something going on inside him. This is deeply, deeply personal. Do I have a counseling? Yes. Do I have a good counter-message for that? Probably not. And most of those that I've seen where, where you have sufficient information to know about counter-messaging would not be effective. Now, I'm not saying that we, therefore, the only answer is heavy machine guns. I mean, there's still a, a community policing is very, very important. 
being in touch with these communities is very, very important. Being in touch with our allies in the Middle East is, is very important and understanding this. But the notion that, again, that, that we as Westerners are going to come up with the, and I'm not belittling your question at all, I'm just saying that we're going to come up with the sales campaign, you know, that, that's going to swing them around. Now, fortunately, fortunately, they're not selling a lot of cars either. I mean, for all of the exhortations, all of the exhortations, the constant uh, admonitions to carry out acts of violence, out of roughly 3 million-plus Muslim Americans, we have had since 9-11, 250,300 people arrested. Now, we're talking about something criminologists like to use as their metric, 100,000, you know, per 100,000, murders per 100,000. We're, we're talking about four or five people per 100,000. So is that a big number or not? Keep in mind the prison population in the United States is 750 per 100,000. And, and that's over... We're talking about fractions of people per 100,000 per year. Makes them very, very hard to find. But, but we're not dealing with a deep reservoir. We're not dealing with an underground. Um, we're not dealing with levels of violence in terms of volume that we were dealing with in the, in the 1970s. In the 1970s in this country, we had 50 to 60 terrorist bombings a year. If we had that today, we'd be going crazy. 50 to 60 terrorist bombings. New World Liberation Front here in California between 80 and 100 bombings, some of them are unclaimed, and we're not certain about who carried them out, but between 80 and 100 bombings, whether underground, anti-Castro-Cubans, Puerto Rican separatists, Jewish Defense League, Armenians, everyone was bombing. <laughs> you know, we've, we've got a handful of, 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 of really amateurs here, fortunately, um, that... that are, are, are not doing that well. And we have to make sure we keep it down at that level. That's that challenge. We're not going to make it. We're not going to get to 100%. But we have to make sure that it's not going to get that much worse. So first off, just thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us this evening. Um, it's been quite insightful. Uh, my question, I think, um, speaks again more to this issue of soft power. Um, I study multicultural community and clinical psychology. I work with severely mentally ill and mentally diagnosed individuals. Um, and a dear friend of mine actually lost two people in the San Bernardino attacks. Um, and so I'm curious, from your perspective, perhaps you could point us in the direction of some initiatives either within the Grand Corporation or elsewhere that are dealing with this issue. Um, I, I know that uh, mental health and psychosocial support for not only individuals in the United States, but world refugees coming out of this crisis will be increasingly important um, moving forward. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more. There, there are a number of areas, and we can talk about this after, too, in, in, in greater detail. As I say, there, there's uh, my own work and, and those of others who have been working with me to understand are the homegrown terrorist phenomenon and to understand, okay, what is actually the process 
by which these individuals, fortunately small numbers, so you can look at them in terms of individual biographies, um, uh, got to that point where they they radicalized. Um, In some of Rand's um, public health uh, uh, policy programs, they're looking at different dimensions of this. There's a whole other dimension of Rand's work which has to do with social media uh, sorts of things. I don't think, honestly, I mean, we are, we are struggling to get there. It is, first of all, you know, in terms of, of um, a lot of what we do is sponsored by the federal government or foundation. It is easier to get um, federal support for hard power things than it is for soft power things. That's just the nature of, 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 of things. And um, when we do get into some of the... Uh, some of these things like countering violent extremism, CVE. Um, We're also dealing with, uh, you end up dealing with certain ideologies as well that get in the way of of research here. I mean, again, there's there's belief systems. There's what people want to believe. And the the reality may not conform to that. But in in terms of understanding this... um, I, I, I don't think we are there yet. I just don't think we are there. In terms of, of changes in my own views over the years, I perhaps years ago was a lot more confident, confident about getting there than I am now. I'm, I'm a lot more skeptical on some of these things. One thing I'm very, very skeptical about, I think we can probably improve our understanding, but um, there is a rush to... So, you know, I'll, I'll end with this. Very first time I testified before Congress, 1974, House Foreign Relations Committee. Was really apprehensive about this. I worked hard to write my testimony, practice my oral testimony. My secretary grilled me with questions. If they had asked me how many machine guns in the IRA, I could have told them, you know, 27. Um, get up there and testify. First question from the first congressman. Mr. Jenkins, what can we do to end terrorism? (laughs) Uh, I mumbled along for many paragraphs in in an incoherent response. But the point is that, you know, the fact is, years later, we're still struggling with some of these basic issues. And when it comes to human behavior, and we can understand how a machine gun works. I can tell you how an AK-47 works. I can tell you how they build bombs that they try to smuggle on airplanes. We don't have an x-ray for a man's soul. And, and we're still a long way off from that. Thank you very, very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.